If you want to turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 19, we'll be looking at that together shortly. It'll be Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. First, I'd like to lead us in a pastoral prayer. Uh, So as soon as you get your Bible out and start to find that spot, maybe pause for a moment and bow your heads with me as as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, tonight we'll gather for our members meeting to consider your ministry and your mission, to consider receiving and releasing members. The spiritual war that you've engaged us in is weighty and we appeal to you. We worship you. We ask for your guidance. Too many of our members' love has grown cold. They're irregular to the weekly corporate worship gatherings. They need to repent and return to the love that they had at first. And we ask that you call them back. You are bringing us new members. And we pray for them now. Lord, we have shame as a people from time to time. Some are plagued by it here today. How could we be wanted or accepted by you? But you take what seems impossible to us and you make it possible because you ordained it. Uncertainty slows us down. How could we know which way's forward? But you strengthen us. We ask for it today. We ask for refreshing today. We ask for comfort for those that are hurting from 9-11. We ask for salvation of our friends and of our enemies before it's eternally too late before they are found to be eternally at odds with you. As we gather this morning, Lord, our hearts are heavy for those friends of our congregation that are battling illness, whose families are weary. We pray to you as our great physician, and we pray for health for people like Blair Gilmore and Ed Collins. We know those in our midst, some are grieved from recent loss in this past season, and they're barely getting by. Some are hanging by a thread, hoping that some saint will take notice of them this morning. Help each of us to hug the brokenhearted today. We pray for their comfort symbolically for the Wade family and the Houseman family and the Stanley family and the Marvel family. God, some of our members live with chronic pain daily pain. It's not a matter of whether they're going to wake up with pain. It's a matter of how bad the pain's going to be. God, we pray for healing from chronic illness that's discouraged so many of our friends. We think of our friend Emily and our friend Bryce. We ask for your help. Lord, even when we're not chronically ill, when we're relatively healthy, we lack the discipline necessary to complete the task that you've assigned us. And we need your help. Fix the broken part of us that leads us to procrastinate. Ambition never satisfies us. We always want more until we rest in you. We never have enough. We always desire. We exhaust our emotions chasing meaning when you are enough and your word is sufficient. So we petition you for a humble heart today to receive what you've prepared for us. God, I think about our fellow members 
who work so hard to provide for their family. They're often not able to be here, and when they are here, they're hardly here. Free them. Grant them rest. Energize them today. Draw them close. Focus their minds. We know that joy comes in the morning for all of your children. Help us to see it clearly now in Jesus' precious name. And all of God's children say, Amen. Augustine lived in the 4th century A.D. In fact, he lived from 354 to 430. He knew of Roman persecution. He knew of Christian liberty that was ushered in finally in A.D. 313 with the reign of Emperor Constantine when he legalized Christianity. He watched the Roman Empire decline and even fall even as Christianity was finally made legal after ten waves of Roman persecution against Christians in the empire. He wrestled with the ethical theory of Christians engaging in warfare as a viable Christian philosophy rather than pacifism. The theory that emerged from his wrestlings and others like him is often referred to as just war theory. Just war theory. We still interact with his principles of justice of war or just war theory today. Pundits will think, does this nation have just cause for war in this particular instance? Whether the pundits realize it or not, they're borrowing from Christian tradition when they ask such questions and seek to answer them. Historians will seek to answer the question, even the questions of revolutionaries from France and even America. Was that a just revolution? Was it a just war. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11, September 11th, 2001. Many of us remember exactly where we were and how we felt when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers. The images galvanized one generation of citizens in this particular country against Islamic jihadist terrorists and their attacks and desires to attack Western civilization. 9-11, as it's now become known, is a history note to our youngest children, but it's personal to those of us that were alive and have memory. It was a sophisticated attack involving the hijacking of airplanes carrying civilians. America, her leaders, tracked the planners of 9-11 to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So the thought was to track them there and to keep them there, Agree with it or don't agree with it. We've been in a conflict for 20 years in Afghanistan until just this year. One summarizes just war theory in the following way. The principles of the justice of war are commonly held to be having just cause, being a last resort, being declared by a proper authority, possessing right intention, having a reasonable chance of success, and the end being proportional to the means being used. You can find those online. Another summarized it more briefly. The just war theory is a Christian philosophy that attempts to reconcile taking human life is seriously wrong, that states have a duty to defend their citizens, and the need for justice. Protecting innocent human life and defending important moral values sometimes requires willingness to use force. Most, even Christians, will agree. So what is the proper use of force? And however distasteful war is, 
and some of us might need to reconsider this, mor this morning our ease with a wartime mentality. If you border on pugilism, a fighting spirit, perhaps reconsider. But however distasteful war is and however much we, we try to avoid it whenever possible, I'm going to argue this morning that there is no war-less category in the Christian worldview. Christ's holy war is a just war. Let's consider now Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. And as I read, I want you to consider the fact that those who disagree with this position that Christ's holy war is a just war will often argue that war is unbecomingly ugly, that it's unnecessary, and that it's unjust. I'm going to argue this morning from this text that Christ's holy war is a just war because of Christ's character, Christ's invitation, and Christ's obligation. So you're going to be able to follow along this morning with the text in verses 11 through 15. We're going to see Christ's character, that His holy war is consistent with His character. We're going to see Christ's invitation, that He invites us to be on His side in His holy war. And we're going to see finally, that's verses 16 to 18, and finally verses 19 to 21, we're going to see Christ's obligation that to keep His promises, He is under an obligation that He's put on Himself to conduct this holy war. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, whether you're following on the screen or in your personal Bible, or at home if you're reading because you're ill. It's Revelation 19, 11 to 21. At the end, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and I'll ask you to respond. Praise be to God. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
First, we see in this text this morning, Christ's holy war is a just war because of Christ's character. We'll see that His character is important with regard to His personal witness, His judgment, and His teaching. So let's see His character on display here with His witness. Look at verse 11 again. It says that John saw, the author of this letter, this apocalypse, this prophetic book, he saw heaven opened. A powerful statement. Reminds us of Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Seeing heaven opened. And behold, imperative verb, a white horse! Exclamation mark. So what he sees is heaven opened up. He peers into it, as is common in Revelation. And he wants us to see... God wants us to see a white horse, but He really wants us to zero in not on the horse, but on the one that's riding on the horse, the one that's setting on the horse. So what you see in the second half of verse 11 is one setting on a horse. Now, we can spoiler alert the movie here a little bit. We know who's setting on the horse, right? It's Christ. But, and almost universally agreed upon, regardless of your interpretation of Revelation, is Christ is setting on this horse. Now, the question is, though, well, how is Christ described? What is being communicated about Christ's character here that makes this holy war a just war? Well, as I've said, His witness is one aspect of His character on display here. What it says here about His witness is that He is called faithful and true. He was a faithful witness. He was and is until the end. And a true witness. He always said what is true in the face of half-truths and whole lies. We see here in verse 13 that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. A robe dipped in blood. This is a bloody garment. It's a, it's, he's wearing bloody clothes. Now there is some discussion about whether this is the blood of those that have been judged by God's wrath, the wine press. The, the smattering that would look like blood by imagery, as well as just the defeat of God's enemies. People die, they bleed. That's possible. It's also possible to read this and to see, well, what did Christ do on the cross? He shed His blood. Uh, I don't know that there's categorical proof of which way to read this. I've seen folks consider it both ways as I've been studying for this sermon. But the fact of the matter is, this is a consequential statement. The rider of this horse has a robe that's stained with blood. So he, his witness is one in which he's willing to suffer, one in which he's willing to see things through. His witness is always faithful, unlike you and I, where we're sometimes faithful. His witness is always true, never confused, never convoluted, never obscuring the truth. This is the character of the one riding on the horse. And white horses were symbols of victory. To ride on a white horse was to ride in on victory. Compare it to what he rode in on on Palm Sunday. Do you recall? We wave the palm branches here every Sunday, every Palm Sunday, generally speaking. I looked it up. I think it's April like 10th next year. We'll wave those palm branches and we'll sing... Clap your hands, and we're talking about the prophecy fulfilled of Zechariah 9.9 where the Lord Jesus rides in right on a humble colt. It's a humble riding in, and they wave these. Contrast that image, which is a, a visible 
image, for sure, of conquest of a certain variety with this victorious white horse that he rides in on. And we're going to see that his accomplices, his army, his heavenly army, probably angels, also ride in on their own white horses. So white is a symbol of victory, but also a symbol of purity. Notice in this passage, letting your eyes glance down at chapter 19, verse 14. It says, The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Notice the linens are white, a symbol of purity. If you look up in chapter 19 to verse 8 and consider this text as a whole and not simply where we've broken it off for the sake of sermons, you will see that it was granted the church to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what is this fine linen? It's the sanctifying work of the Spirit in your lives This fine linen in verse 8 is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the idea of purity, of pursuing purity, of pursuing right, is part and parcel for what it means to be a Christ follower, a Christian. We are imitating Christ. We're seeking to be like Christ because of Christ's perfect character and because we love Him and because He has made us now new so that we might follow Him. His character is on display in His witness as well as in His judgments. Notice it says here that He judges. Now, He's not like us in how He judges. He isn't partial. He isn't incomplete. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. It says the one sitting on this horse judges. That's a verb. And makes. That's another verb. He judges... And he makes. He judges in righteousness and he makes war. Though whatever we say about the justness of his war, it's an undeniable reality that the Word of God declares that Christ makes war. In particular, this last battle. It says that he judges righteously or rightly. He never judges wrongly. He sees to the deepest core of every human being, every single one of you. He sees as far inside as, you, as the center of you is, and He knows you. You have no secrets from God. You know, too often we live as if God doesn't know what happens in the private aspects of our lives. But texts like this demand us to think differently about Christ's character. He sees all the way in. And it would take a Christ that sees all the way in in order to save you all the way through. I wonder today if you need to be honest with yourself and with another believer about the sin besetting you in the secret part of your life. And I wonder if by doing that is scary as that is for you, I wonder if you wouldn't be applying this aspect of Christ to your life in such a way that you would see a breakthrough moment. Because Christ sees all the way to the deepest part of you. There are no secrets from Christ. Even though He doesn't act impulsively, 
He will act one day. He will act on behalf of His people, and He will thwart the onslaught of the enemy. And He knows you. His eyes are like fire, verse 12 says, meaning He sees all the way in, and He is the Word of God. He's described as all-knowing. Consider John 1.1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or also, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, in another place, in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this Word dwelling flesh, flesh dwelling Word. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or consider Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, where it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He spoke to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom, he also, through whom also He created the world, through the Son He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so, He is right in His judgments. And He's also right in His teaching. It's not just His witness and His judgments, it's also His teaching. Every word that proceeds from Christ's mouth, every word of Scripture is absolutely right. From the mouth comes a sharp sword, our passage in Revelation says. A precise sword. This sword is precise in that Jesus' initiative for salvation through judgment is precise. This is the word of the Lord, and we say praise be to God because we are God's children. Consider these precise and penetrating and providing words in Hebrews 4, 11 to 16. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is alive, it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." Since then we have a a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are tempted, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, are you in a time of need right now? Do you need to, to find mercy and grace for help in your time of need? Are you looking for confidence to draw, draw near to the throne of grace in prayer? Look to your high priest, Jesus, whose character is unblemished. Cease with looking to your own character in an effort to get you in a good enough position to come to the throne of grace in prayer. If your confidence is based on your character alone, you will not ever come to the throne with the joy and the peace 
that Christ has provided for you. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. None of us comes to the throne of grace in prayer, having it all figured out or being without sin. We don't come to the throne of grace as perfect beings. We're on the way. The reason you have confidence is not because of your priestly capacities, but because of Christ's priestly capacities. The Bible explains in different places that Christ fulfills the threefold office of Messiah as a priest and as a prophet and as a king. And we certainly see in Revelation 19 his prophetic fulfillments as well as his, his regal or his kingly fulfillments. And we're going to see that in our next point. But suffice to say, for this one, Christ's holy war is a just war because of Christ's character. His shepherd's staff has been used to draw back in wayward members, but also to club as a club to shatter the saints now, or shatter the nations, not the saints, like broken glass. And so when he shatters these nations, it's the final judgment of this good shepherd. From his mouth proceeds absolute character in what he teaches, and his holy word or his holy war is of Christ, who as he makes war is unblemished in his character. And so we see here his witness, we see his judgments, and we see his teaching as complete and pure. Now, I want to say before we move on to the second point, because I think there's one more point of application that might be helpful. We live in this information age where so much information is at our fingertips, right? And I think some of us live a little bit concerned about how much information is amassed in these things and we live concerned about whether or not we can control this, that, or the other outcome in the information age and in knowledge. And, and I, I think those are worthy concerns. I, too, have some of those concerns. But one of the things by application that this text tells me is that Christ knows everything and that Christ will not be commandeered with his ability to handle all the information that has ever been amassed in the history of the creation of mankind. You, there will be no totalitarian state. There will be no business. There will be no entity, whether old or new Babylon, that has the ability to filter and process information with the efficacy of Christ. And when he comes to judge, he will know exactly what is said. He will not punish the wrong person, and there will be no collateral damage. That much is true, and I hope you're comforted by that. Because I think that's a natural implication of his text. Now, number two, Christ's holy war is a just war because of Christ's invitation. It's a powerful invitation, and it's a timely invitation. Let's see how powerful the invitation is. Look at chapter 19, verse 16. It says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Look at the power there. Now look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. John did. So an angel like standing on the sun or in plain view like the sun. And with a loud voice, the angel calls out, Hey, birds, vultures that fly overhead, come gather for your great supper to eat the flesh of the kings and captains and mighty men and horses and riders and all men, and, and not just great men, small men, slave and free. It is a... It is a, a a potent passage. It's a frightening passage. I think the Lord knew it would be a difficult passage for us to be sure. You know, Christ has power to do this right now. 
So Christ restrains his power. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I wonder if you've repented this morning of your sin. Not to earn your salvation, but because of how great this salvation is. I wonder if you've had faith in Jesus and repented of your ways in which you haven't followed Him. Perhaps this morning you need to become a Christian. I invite you to Christ this morning. I implore you to come to Christ because without Christ and His character, without Christ and your reception of His invitation, without Christ you have no hope on the day that this last battle happens and eternity is completed and consummated and Eden is restored. It's a powerful invitation for you and for me. And Christ is patient with us as we ought to be patient with one another. But He won't be mocked and He isn't endless in His waiting. One day this is going to happen. His return is imminent. He will come again. This verse 16 talks about on His thigh. There's a name written. And the thigh is a place promises would have been made in the ancient Near East. You put your hand on someone's thigh and you'd swear and make a promise. It says here that he is the ultimate king and he's the ultimate Lord. The ultimate king and the ultimate Lord. That no injustice will finally prevail against King Jesus. One commentator said it like this. He said, Revelation 19 shows the fulfillment of the single greatest promise of history. The return of Christ to reign on the earth. The return of Christ to reign on the earth. This text is a fulfillment of the second psalm, which we'll consider more closely next week, Lord willing. Lord willing. In Psalm 2, Christ has power, kingly, lordly, shepherdly, and divinely to issue this invitation to say, I, divinely, because my name that's written down that no one knows but myself, verse 12, Christ would say, I can invite you to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and to avoid the feast of persecution that is the supper for the ungodly. Christ is able to issue this invitation because of who He is. Christ is inexhaustible. You won't know Him well if you're simply seeking to figure Him all out. Such power is suitable for you to love Him, not to question Him endlessly. When Moses questioned the Lord, asking him, What should I call you? What am I going to tell the people that your name is? The Lord said, effectively, my name is a deep mystery. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. From the burning bush, as theologians call it the tetragrammaton, God said to mankind, effectively, You don't own me. You don't control me. You, don't have, any, you have no need to fix me. You simply worship me. I gave you dominion to name people. You don't get to name me in return. The only response to Christ is worship. The response to Christ is not to fix Him or figure Him out as if we can. What He's made known to us is for us, but there are secret things and mysterious things. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The revealed things belong to us, but the secret things, they belong to the Lord. So the I Am issues us a powerful invitation But it's an invitation. We don't get to dictate the terms of the invitation. We don't get to change the rules. 
or the plan. God knows better than we do. And it's not just a powerful invitation, but this text tells us this is a timely invitation. The invitation here has in mind the invitation aforementioned in chapter 19. Look up at uh, verses 7 through 9 in chapter 19. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We read this two weeks ago, last time I preached in, this, in, in Revelation. It says in verse 8, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You've seen that already. Now verse 9, And the angel said to me, that is John, but it's also to us, Write this down, intimating we would read it. It says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, that is an invitation. It's powerful. Invita- and it's, it, the power, it's invitation is powerful and it's timely. It's for an appointed time in your life by which you would receive that invitation and you would, by receiving Christ and you would have great assurance of your presence at the marriage supper of the Lamb on that day. And this is something that we take by faith. I don't know all the intricacies of the Holy War. I don't know all the intricacies of the marriage feast of the Lamb. You don't either. We may have a better or lesser understanding of what the text says, but all that any of us has is the revelation of what is said, that there will be a supper and all of God's people will be there together. And there are secrets about that, but there are knowns about that. You must be Christ's in this life in order to be at that supper. And the contrast of it brings clarity for us in chapter 19, verse 17, because they gather for a great supper of God if you're not amongst those that are in the bride of Christ that are coming to the marriage feast of the Lamb that have this fine linen on that God has granted you to have, if that's not your invitation, then instead you are lining up against the Lord, being counted with the enemies of the Lord, and you will be gathering on that day for the great supper of God that is not the marriage feast of a lamb. Instead, it is the great judgment, because God gets glory in salvation through judgment, we have learned. And so Revelation 19.17 is a frightening truth for the enemies of God. It's a frightening truth because your unbelief is not benign. Your unbelief is not harmless. There's no pluralism or universalism in Revelation 19. This is an exclusive gospel that must be received volitionally by every single person that receives the invitation to follow Christ. And the frightful thing is for those that smugly, selfishly, endlessly reject the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Because you'll have a supper, and it is a petrifying supper. It's a petrifying supper. I like to fish the White River with my my family in Arkansas. We trout fish in it, and spend any length of time around me or you come to a men's breakfast and we're talking at the table eventually I'll talk about fishing it's a hobby of mine I enjoy it it's a peaceful thing for me to do and my dad invariably I don't can't remember very many fishing trips where we're not running that boat up the white river or floating back down and he'll say see them birds up in the air kids see them birds over there over that tree line see them circling around and say you know what that means uh, yeah you've taught us this something has died the birds circle over where something has died, like vultures, right? 
and they eat what is dead. The imagery here is unmistakable. The enemies of God, lifeless, defeated, permanently expelled from the presence of God, tasting the first death, and it is not a death with dignity, and then seeing the second death, which Revelation 20 is going to explain, eternally in the abyss that is hell. It doesn't have to be that way for any of you. And it isn't that way for all you who believe. Let not your heart be troubled. If you trust Christ, you have an invitation to the marriage feast of the Lamb. If you deny Christ, you have something to fear bigger than man. This is an invitation that is truly timely and truly scary if rejected. Institutional sins will be punished as we see nations being punished, but individual sinners too will be punished. Consider 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-12 on this score. It says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, we want to do that, don't we? We want to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Thessalonians, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by His power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-12 is a reminder that this invitation has a time constraint to it. It's a powerful invitation that is effective for you, but it's an invitation by which you must receive in this life, and then you'll be there on that day. Vengeance does not belong to us. Romans says it belongs to the Lord. And Thessalonians says vengeance will be inflicted on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Revelation 21 says that hell, the second death, is reserved for impenitently, sexually immoral people, for baby murderers, for liars, for idolaters, for murderers of every kind that will never worship Christ and will never obey His gospel. Revelation 14.10 says that the enemies of God will drink the wine of God's full strength wrath in the presence of holy angels and the Lamb. Frightening, but accurate. Preachers have invited these to Christ, and, but yet they didn't receive. And I'm going to say today that I'm not joining the chorus of Satan that is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. I'm not accusing you of not being a believer. I'm not. I'm just simply asking you to verify that you are. That's all. That's it. If you are a believer, then you're a believer. Assurance comes to the believers through the ordinary means of grace. Let's get going together on this thing. So don't think this morning that I'm joining the chorus of the great accuser. 
Today I'm simply issuing you the invitation that Christ has commissioned me to issue you, and that is to come to Him. The invitation stands for you now. And the promises of Him, well, the promises are amazing. He'll never leave you or forsake you. All who come to Him, John says, He will no wise cast out. He'll never cast you out. Your sins earns you your second death, but Christ earns you eternal life. So trust Him. Believe on Him. This timely invitation is for you. Now, after we have considered Christ's character and Christ's invitation, let's finally consider Christ's obligations. These are obligations to vindicate, and they're obligations to ensure the new creation. First, let's consider his obligation to vindicate under this third point. He has a vindication obligation because he's put himself under this obligation. The Bible says that every promise in the Bible finds its yes in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20. And so this obligation, this vindication is an obligation for Christ. And you say, well, you can't put Christ under an obligation, Pastor Matt. You're right, I can't. He's put himself under an obligation to vindicate and to establish the new creation. And God is not like us in that we make promises and then sometimes fail to keep them. God keeps his promises. Promises are made and promises are kept. Now, the beast in chapter 13 of Revelation, if we were to look back at it and take the time to do so, attempted to counterfeit the Trinity with his own crowns, his diadems, with his own names, with his own resurrection-type experience. And the beast was verified by the false spirit of the false prophet. And those two are in view in our final verses. They are punished. They are thrown into the abyss. And we'll see in chapter 20 that the imitation of the father, the dragon, will also be thrown into the abyss. But this counterfeit divinity has tricked and will trick trick many people. This counterfeit divinity is indeed not running around in a red dress. This counterfeit divinity is seductive on the one hand, and it persecutes on the other. The enemies of God have orchestrated the shedding of the blood of the saints, old and new, and the shedding of the blood of our only rescuer from sin, our only Savior, the rider of this white horse, Christ. Christ did not strike first blood. Christ has vindicated, Christ will vindicate as an obligation the blood of every single saint, present and past and future. Even at the end, the enemies of Christ will continue to reject his invitation to his supper. But it will have been too, too late anyway. They're going to get the supper that they want, this standoff with God. And, you know, I can only imagine that we look like we lose. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm sure the world's really shuddering in their boots right now when they look at us gathered out on Sunday morning. I'm sure they look at that meager gathering of ever how many people and their families, and I'm sure the world looks and says, I'm pretty sure we can blow them to smithereens if we want to. Not so. And so that's really convenient for you to say, Pastor. No, no, I'm telling you right now, God plus one is a majority. There is no force no economic force, there's no religious force, there's no political force, there's no military might. There is no force that stands against God and that stands on that day. So I'm asking you this morning to stand with Christ. Truly, we don't look like we're going to win. But that's why it's by faith and not by sight. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise of God the Father. 
gritting your teeth, or smiling on your face. Worshippers of Christ, you'll be smiling on the day of the Lord. As unseemly as it seems now, God's holy war is just because He will fulfill His obligations. It's hard on our sensibilities, I must say. But perhaps it would help if you consider just how much ugly has been done. Consider this Croatian theologian Miroslav Volv's statement in Michael Reeves' book, Delighting in the Trinity. And I'd say his statement is similar to what Augustine would have said if he were writing something exactly the same. And maybe he has, and I haven't read it, to be honest, as he watched the Visigoths sack Rome, saw his land torched. Miroslav, the Croatian theologian, wrote about the horrors of ethnic warfare that happened around him as a way to help us appreciate God's wrath. He said this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divinity love and divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. He said, my last res resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God being, not being angry. I could not imagine God not being angry, he wrote autobiographically. He said, or think about Rwanda in the last decade of the 20th century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparent fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators as, perpetrators as basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's great evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. End quote. He truly cares. He will bring justice. He loves His people. Be among His people. Love Him. He will vindicate every wrong, and He will vindicate His people. And He will also ensure the new creation. Verses 19 through 21 are a great effort to share with you afresh and anew the insurance of the new creation. His enemies won't be there to sully the thing again. Look at verses 19 through 21. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies that had gathered proactively to make war against Christ who was sitting on this white horse and against his army. And he captured the beast. It doesn't even get into all the details. The, the beast, the false Christ captured... The false spirit, the false prophet captured, who'd done all these deceptive signs and received those that took on the marks of the beast and who worshiped the beast. And those two were thrown into hell, lake of fire. Verse 21 says, The rest, the beast's followers, they refused to follow Christ. They were slain by the sword that came from his mouth. So it doesn't have to be physical warfare. We know every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We know that the word of the Lord is the sword of the Lord. So I, I don't know, literal or figurative at that point, but the fact of the matter is every single enemy of God will be slayed and they will not have a death with dignity. This is going to be a date with destiny and their destiny outside of Christ is eternal damnation. 
This is God's word. It is a hard word, but it is a true word. One commentator said of these verses, We have seen Babylon as the seductive world system described in terms of reminiscent of ancient Rome, its chief expression in John the Apostle's day when he wrote this. This system seeks both to seduce and to persecute the church, but will succumb to the power of Christ at his second coming. Another one writes, Those who take note of the tendencies of modern civilization will not find it impossible to conceive that a time may come when throughout Christendom the spirit of Antichrist will, with the support of the state, make a final stand against Christianity, which is loyal to the person and teaching of Christ. Can't you see that? Can't you see them aligned against Christ, his people that believe in the teaching of Christ and the person of Christ? Now or later, can't you see the possibility of it? It's plausible, isn't it? Wars can be just. Nations are given the sword, the Bible says. Here, nations will give an account for their use of the sword. Aren't you glad? Here, nations will give an account for their use of the sword. William Hendrickson says, Remember that Har Megiddo, or Harmageddon, that mountain in Israel consists of two elements where that last battle will be fought. I taught on that some weeks ago. He says this, The final attack of the anti-Christian power, the beast upon the church, and Christ's victory over this vast army at His coming judgment is assured. Another says here that His victory is assured. All the enemies go down in defeat. Remember at Har Megiddo, the final attack of the anti-Christian power, the beast upon the church, is one element and Christ's victory over this vast army at His coming in judgment is another element. I remember standing on that, where they think Mount Megiddo is, where all those wars were fought in Israel when I was there in 2012. Melissa and I were there, and the way the winds crossed and whistled, it was an eerie place to be, to be sure. If you had seen it, if you were there, if you researched it, I think you would find that this battle, this scene, the imagery that comes to mind from the first readers is profound. It's profound. What we need to take from this is that peace will come through the strength of this final war and there will be eternally, er, eternal peace and the new earth will be forevermore and that that is ensured. God not only vindicates but ensures that the new creation will be free from foils and frustrations. All of Christ's real enemies will be eradicated from the premises in the new creation. So he's keeping this obligation to vindicate the saints and prevent evil infiltration into the new creation. Now, I said from the beginning that some would protest at even the mere mention of war that's so clearly mentioned in Revelation 19. They might protest that Christ's holy war is unbecomingly ugly, that it's unnecessary, or that it's unjust. Let me take just a moment to speak to those protests. Christ's holy war is unnecessary. This view, I think, doesn't take into consideration the comfortlessness of eternity if evil would come in and sully again. Seduction to sin has no place in God's eternity with us. Babylon's beast and all the believers of the beast will all face eternal separation from God. The biblical doctrine of hell demands this outcome, and so I think the war is necessary to ensure eternal bliss with Christ. Another protest is that Christ's holy war is not just. How can a war be a just war? Well, we picked up on that from the very beginning this morning. 
But let me make one more comment to that end. This view does not take into consideration the deep human desire for justice for people like the Yugoslavians that I read about, or even the the Afghani Christians, for examples, just to name a few. This view does not take into consideration the character of Christ to vindicate the saints, a theme throughout Revelation that he promises to do. The prayers of the persecuted saints reach the Lord. Their persecution is not in vain, and Christ will vindicate. If not in this life, certainly in eternal life. So Christ's holy war is necessary because of humanity's rebellion, because of God's goodness. His war is beauty for believers because he keeps his promises that he made so he can be trusted. His war is necessary because of justice, and he will separate regenerate saint from unregenerate sinner on that day. Christ's holy war is a just war because of Christ's character, because of his invitation, and because of his obligation. And this matters to everybody, everyone, everywhere, in all time. This is completely relevant. You want to make church relevant? Preach about this. It's absolutely relevant. There's nothing irrelevant about the human condition and ultimate questions. Where do I come from? Where am I going? Why does my life matter? Christ's war matters and makes your life matter because your life is best understood, not stuck in the past, but stuck on the future. Live your life in reverse. Begin with the end in sight. It's a good axiom. The end is eternal separation of not Christ's from Christ's. We must not misrepresent Christ by questioning the beauty and the necessity and the justness of his final battle and his final judgment. On the cross, Jesus predicted it. He said on the cross, you might remember, what did he say? It is finished. On the cross, salvation was finished. And on the day of his second coming, judgment will be finished too. Let's join together and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a hard text, but it is a true text because it's your text. We hope in your gospel, even during our struggle, because of your glory. We know you will be faithful to keep your promises in life and death. We believe you're making a beautiful new creation, a place where we will be safe to interact and enjoy without sinning, a place where justice will be complete, and we thank you for it. We praise you for it. Let's take a few moments now before I say amen and just reflect on these things in silence.